0: If you would turn tonight to Acts chapter 24. well, maybe you're in that group of people that thinks that once you become a Christian, every last one of your stars is going to line up. Everything that you ever do is going to turn up roses. Every morning will be sunny. Every bank account filled. All your problems will go away and your life will be filled with nothing but what the world would say are blessings. If there were ever a man to, about whom that might be suspected to be true, you would think it would be those who are used by the Lord the very most. And so certainly Apostle Paul would be on the top of that list of people who ought to be exempt from trials. Amen? So we've studied here through the book of Acts. He's already been through an awful lot of stuff. He's going to be pushed through even more things, as we'll see as we head towards the end of the book of Acts. But here in chapter 24, Paul is now going to build build a, a case for himself but he's going to do so in a Roman court of law. And the easy way for us to understand the court system then was it was very similar to a court TV show today. It was considered entertainment. So if you've ever watched Judge Judy or or any of those types of things to where you kind of have a court situation, but by and large, it's entertainment. The case has already been decided, the outcome has already been tendered, and it's only a matter of time before the outcome is pronounced. That is exactly what you have here in Acts chapter 24. And in this case, we're going to see Apostle Paul uh, in a court of law. He's going to be standing against uh, one of the great orators of his time, He's going to have to be his own defense. You've read those cases uh, in the news. You've maybe watched them on television or perhaps seen them on the Internet where some foolish person chooses to act as their own defense attorney. And they take up their own case. And it normally does not turn out very well, does it? Because they don't have the sufficient legal understanding of normally even what the charges are against him, much less how to defend it. It doesn't work out well. The Apostle Paul is going to come to his own defense. And the deck truly will be stacked against him here in Acts 24. And he's going to endure this trial. And this trial is going to go on for a period of time. We're going to find out at the end that he will endure two years of being brought back and forth into the court of Felix, the governor. At that day and time, there was no separation of powers. And so there was no judicial branch and legislative branch in that sense. Uh, There was just the Roman government. And so the Roman government pretty much did what it pleased, acted as it wanted. And it is now that we come to these next three chapters and we find, really, we get a time uh, in the Roman political system. And we're going to see exactly uh, how corrupt it actually was at the time. And so as we dig in here at Acts 24, would you pray with me? We'll ask God to speak through the wonder of his word. Father, again, we, we came tonight to worship you, to praise you, to study your word, to be instructed from heaven. And we pray that you'd help us to draw uh, from our rich history, Lord, of the Apostle Paul, this amazing book, this, this second book authored by the Apostle Luke, Luke chapter 2. Uh, it's it just this incredible picture of the history uh, of how the church became what it is today and how the Holy Spirit worked in our world and still is at work in our world. And so God bless us as we study, encourage, and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now as we begin this journey over these next three chapters, it's kind of important for us to really think on it for a second, because sometimes we think that church happens only in a place called church. But church can happen anywhere that there are believers gathered together, and in fact, Scripture goes so far as to say, Jesus speaking, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be in their midst. And so church is not a place. Church is a group of people who are gathered together for the purpose uh, of discussing and being taught and learning of the things of God. Now, I don't think that Felix actually intended to start a church, but he actually gets the Apostle Paul as the pastor of his church for two years. And so, as we dig in, we find him in the court uh, of Felix, the governor. Uh, We'll be leaving, actually, next Tuesday, some of us, the rest of us on Wednesday, will be traveling to Israel. And when you travel, the first stop that we actually make on our first day uh, is the National Park at Caesarea Maritima. I showed a couple of slides last time. And this one is, is a good one because it really gives you an aerial view uh, of kind of the complex. And what you can't see, which would be uh, out of view on your right, my left, uh, is the peninsula that held Herod's palace and would have held also the complex of these three governors. So Felix, Festus, and ultimately uh, on to Emperor Agrippa all members of a ruling class of people and a ruling family. And so as you look down on this from a drone shot, uh, what you're looking at is the theater there. Notice I didn't say amphitheater because that would make it a full round. This is half, so it's a theater. Uh, And there in the middle of the theater was a place that you all know, you read your Bibles, which most of you have. Uh, There in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're all one day going to stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat. Well, the judgment seat in these times is located in the theater. And so the people from the community of Caesarea, Caesarea in this case Maritima, would come and fill those stands and they would actually watch the oratory. It was the closest thing to MTV that there was. And so they would gather in the stands, and then both participants, both the plaintiff and the defendant, uh, they would gather together, they would be in the same place, and they would mount their case, and it would be political theater, literally. And so this particular trial almost assuredly took place in that particular theater. And they're in the center of it, the Bemis seat, and they would have taken turns. One would speak, another would speak. They would normally stand side by side and just go back and forth. And so this trial unfolds before a very large crowd. It could have been uh, thousands. This theater today seats about 5,000 people. It's believed to roughly be the same height as it was then. Looks like there's an added row, maybe uh, an extra six or 800 seats at the top of it. But it surely at the time... Uh, held many thousands of people, and they would have been just in rapt attention. And so verse 1, we see the trial get underway, and Paul's going to respond brilliantly. Uh, He's actually going to win a reprieve. He's going to get a little bit of an opportunity to go back and collect some more evidence, if you will, and present his case. And so verse 1 here in Acts 24 Now now after five days Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. Now when you see the word orator here, we would normally use in its place the term attorney or lawyer. This is an orator, but he's specifically a legal orator. He's, He's known he knows the things of the Roman law. And these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And so you can see the case that's being presented. And so it begins, uh, these gentlemen have now traveled that 60 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea. It's the, it's the center of the Roman government. Remember that in essence at that time Jerusalem was the Jewish capital. The Romans uh, certainly had a presence there in the Antonio Fortress on the north side of the Temple Mount. Uh, but this is, this is the seat of Roman government this is the place of Herod's palace by the sea and so the public speaker the, the the rhetoros comes out and he takes his stand and he begins to speak about this incredible crime that's been committed by the apostle paul the word that's used here is used only here in the entire new testament but it it could also be translated attorney or advocate And so he's been hired by the Jewish counselor. So this guy is actually a Jewish attorney and he's going to come and he's going to just lay into Paul's case. Verse two, he goes on. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, seeing that though you through you, excuse me, we enjoy a great peace. Now I want you to notice something not much has changed in the last couple thousand years. You have here an attorney trying to smooth talk the judge and gain favor by putting him in a, a very good light. So there's a tremendous amount of flattery that's going on here. Seeing as through you, and he's speaking to the most noble Felix, which you'll see in verse 3. Seeing as that through you we enjoy a great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. Can you see it? You know, he's standing out there. You are unbelievable. You're absolutely amazing. Everything you do is wonderful. And we're all beneficiaries of your incredible leadership. Thank you very much. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix. You can almost see him, you know, do the the bow. It, it, this is great theater. I mean, he opens up and he's like, "You talk about love you <laughs> with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, you can almost see this in a British not to be tedious any further. I beg you to hear." <laughs> You can almost see a Shakespearean play out of this one, can't you? I beg you to hear by your courtesy. This is like gag me with a spoon. <laughs> a few words from us, your humble subjects. Doesn't say that there, but you can almost see him. Your humble subjects would like to speak to you, sir. And so he begins his oration by attempting to flatter the one who's going to hear the case. That is the nicest suit I've ever seen, sir. You can can hear what he's doing. And so this orator, this lawyer, first speaks of the peace that comes from Felix's brilliant intellect and reign, and his foresight, and his reforms, and all the things that have happened. Now, I've had an opportunity in my many decades of both ministry and business experience of being with some very powerful people in the halls of government and it is exactly like this this is what goes on you come in for a meeting maybe with a a mayor or a governor or a city council and at first there's the buttering up everyone's trying to make sure that everyone loves them the most And this is politics at its best. I've I've sat in those meetings, I've been in political meetings, where you have people going back and forth, and they're trying to one-up one another with niceties and flattery. And the hope is that eventually, whoever you're speaking about and speaking to will be so enamored with your speech that they'll actually overlook the truth. And that is exactly what's coming. It's kind of like, you are awesome, and oh, by the way, I'm going to tell you a lie. It's kind of like what's going on in the White House right now. It's kind of like what's going on in Congress right now. You all are awesome, but we're going to tell you a lie. And so he begins to speak. And this is the flaw, really, of flattery. And, you know, very often that That slogan, that saying, that axiom that probably many of you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, it actually comes from the Sanskrit, it's about 2,400 years old. You know, if you can win the enemy of your enemy, then you have won a friend, in essence, and that's what's going on right now. Turtleus gives these things to flatter and to buy some time, in essence, to formulate his case in such a way that no one will actually pay attention to the case. And so he begins to present the case. He's going to give actually three accusations against the Apostle Paul. And here they come. For we have found this man a plague. The Apostle Paul as a plague. Creator of dissension among the Jews throughout the world. And a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple. And we seized him and wanted wanted to judge him according to our law. So you can see that he's not actually being accused under Roman law, he's being accused under Jewish law. Because they couldn't put him to death for what he's done under Roman law, so they're going back to the fact that he actually tried to defile the temple, because that's the only thing that he's accused of, that they think that they could prove the charge that He might be put to death for it. And so these three accusations are are made against him. And and they accuse him of stirring up a riot. Now, I want you to notice something. These are, by and large, flat-out lies. They're not only not true, pretty much the exact opposite is true. And one of the tactics of the enemy is to say things that are so outrageous against God's people that no one would believe they would ever make that kind of stuff up. And so they just tell an outright lie that's so out there that people look at it and they go, wow, is he really guilty of that? And I can tell you because I've listened to it. I, I, I've sat there and I'm like, are you actually saying about some church or about some pastor that they did this, this, and this? And they'll go, yeah, that's what we heard. And you go talk to that person, and not only did that not happen, nothing like it has ever happened, but it's just simply the enemy trying to destroy the character of one of God's people. Because if you can destroy the character of someone, you can often destroy the ministry that they've undertaken. And so they're after the character of Paul initially, hoping that in the offing they will also get his death. But if they can just discredit him, if they can destroy his character, they will have accomplished, in essence, all that they need to do, because Paul would then be effectively silenced. And so brilliant tactics here are being used. And so Paul begins to receive these things. He's saying, look, he's a troublemaker. He was insulting. But I want you to notice the, the vagueness with which these charges are made. They're completely unsubstantiated and, in fact, can be proven to be false with just a little bit, which Paul will do, by the way, in this chapter, with just a little bit of commentary. But that doesn't stop the enemy from telling lies about you. That's what he does. The enemy is a liar. That's why Jesus there in John eight forty four, said, He is the father of all lies. He's lied from the beginning. That's his character. That's his nature. And so the first thing, he, he was a, a looman. It means to be a, a plague or a, a pestilent person. He, he was one of those guys that, you know, whatever he did, if he was attached to it, it, it had to be something bad. And in fact, that wasn't true. And if you remember the stories that we've already seen, the apostle Paul was hounded constantly by the very people bringing charges against him. I had a couple of business dealings back in the middle to late 1970s. And it's a person who's now gone home, I pray, to be with the Lord, but she was from north of here. Uh, she owned the property where the new stadium's being built. And she was the owner of Hollywood Park at the time. I was building her a ranch in North San Diego County. And I remember she just, she just kept saying because she had all kinds of money well you didn't do this and you didn't do that and your company didn't do this and you didn't do that and not a bit of it was true. It took me almost a year to counteract all of the things that were said not one of them was true but they did damage enough that I had to counteract what had been said. The same is happening to the Apostle Paul potentially here. Because if this word gets out, remember where it's happening. It's happening in a theater. There are perhaps thousands of people watching what's going on. And so you can imagine the opening remarks here, what everybody's thinking. Can you believe it? Because you know what? They're not going to fact check anything. They're just going to hear the accusation and they're going to believe it. Two things here, don't ever do that to anyone, ever, ever. Number two, if you hear something that's like this, you make sure you do what Matthew 18 says and you go to that brother and between you and them alone, you resolve that matter and gain your brother. Because you can destroy somebody's character with a handful of words. People have been thrown in prison for this kind of stuff and stayed there for a very long time. So be careful what you listen to, and in Jesus' name, unless you know it's true, don't repeat it. Second charge here is that Paul is the, is the leader, if you will, of a sect of Nazarenes. All he did is he said he wanted to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And so everybody now is saying, well, he's a Nazarite. He's got to go because he said he, he vowed to go back to Jerusalem. So the only group that they know that's of Jewish heritage would be the Nazarites. And so they're saying, he's got to be a Nazarene. Paul's just simply saying, I made an oath to the Lord. I want to go back and, oh, by the way, I'm taking an offering back to the church in Jerusalem. But the word that's used here. It's heresios. We get our word heresy from it, or heretic. He's saying, this guy's a heretic. He's not just a cult leader, he's actually speaking heresy. Paul's not going to prosecute him on, on this basis, but if he's being enough of a disruption, he might keep him incarcerated because of the other problems that would come from his life. So the enemy comes at us to try and destroy our character. And we as a church need to be on guard for people who constantly have negative things to say about other people. Because it very rarely accomplishes anything good. Don't be used that way, and don't listen to it either. This designation of Christians as Nazarenes was probably from Jewish Christians, the earliest days of the church. Felix may have known that. and So he's kind of appealing to the partial information that floats around out there about the church. There's a lot of partial information that still floats around in our world about the church. And so you have to be careful. You need to be accurate about what you say about your brothers, your sisters in the Lord. Guard your heart, guard your tongue, guard your lips. Don't be a part of tearing down what God's, God's doing in someone's life by using words that are not flattering. The third charge was the desecration of the temple. Now this was designed to push Felix towards allowing the Jews to put Paul to death. That's the reason for this charge, because it's the only one that really holds any, any potential merit to get Paul the death penalty, and that's what they're after. And of all these things, uh, that would have been the one where he could have, Felix could have deferred and said, well, you know, your law allows this, because that's exactly what happened to Jesus, right? It's exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus. That's, that's why Pontius Pilate, the previous governor of the region of Judea, said, I find no fault in this man. I wash my hands of it. But you have a religious law that says you can kill him. Because he said he was God, the same exact thing is now being said against the Apostle Paul. A little bit different spin on it, but it's the same basic charge. He he has blasphemed the temple, tried to desecrate it. Now remember the story we've already seen. He 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 takes you know this poor guy Trophimus and goes into the. Outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And they make this huge deal out of it. And so what we see in this little argument is kind of what we like to call religious name calling. It's like, oh no, well he said this, and he did that, and he said this. I can tell you, I get those emails every once in a while. People listen very selectively to the words that I say, and they're listening for things that they think I believe. Where I'm trying to communicate, and and so they've already drawn a conclusion. I, I had one a couple of weeks ago where a guy was, ble- you know, he's basically making the charge that I was antinomian, that I was light on sin, and I'm like, dude, what message were you listening to? I say, I'm surprised people come back. I beat them up so hard, but I do it nice. Well, he heard what he wanted to hear. Well, you keep emphasizing the grace of God. You keep emphasizing the love of God. Keep emphasizing the forgiveness of God. And I typed back, I said, yeah. So? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't die because of his sins, but would have everlasting life. So, well, that isn't what I meant. I just, well, obviously, that's not what I meant either. You see, the reason I'm telling you this is it's that simple. You can listen with prejudiced ears, and you can begin to believe something, even though it has no merit whatsoever. Matter of fact, it's the exact opposite, and that is true in the Apostle Paul's life. It's the exact opposite he not only gave credit to the temple, he will go so far as to say, of the law I am faultless. A Pharisee born from Pharisees. He believed the law of God was exactly the righteous word of the Lord. But you get a few people, and before you know it, you're off on some other planet playing a game by yourself. And people enjoy making fun of people trying to do the work of the Lord. There are some people that actually find enjoyment in it, and I believe this group was like that. It's like, well, you know, we've got to get to them. Got to stop this crazy Jesus thing. I had a conversation with a guy last week. He wanted to talk about science and evolution, all those kind of things. I got into a little bit of a conversation with him. And I said, I I want to keep this short, because you and I are obviously on opposite sides of this equation. I said, all I want you to do, I said, I'll be honest, I'll be intellectually honest with you. I want you to prove to me that you have ever seen a mechanism for chemical evolution. That chemicals by themselves, without any outside intervention, without knowledge or energy being inputted, I want you to tell me, even in a closed system, that anything has ever occurred by chance that became alive from chemicals. And he looked at me and said, well, of course I can't prove that. I said, then why are we having this conversation? <laughs> well, you know, you're, you're leading people astray. I said, Really? I said, so if I tell people that there's a creator and the creator created things and you agree with me, how am I leading somebody astray? You see, this is the type of thing that we have to be careful of. Because it'd be real easy to just give up and say, you know what? This is crazy. I'm not going to talk to this guy. It would have saved me some time. But instead, I realized what he was actually after is this church. God's people. And he was sent as an agent of the enemy. So I had to deal with that situation as a pastor. You need to stand strong, family of God. And don't let the enemy bully you. Don't let him call you names. You stand up and do exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to do next. Because truly, the, the, as the trial got underway, eventually what's going to happen... You know, here's these these accusations, troublemaker, ringleader, trying to desecrate the temple. There's not a bit of truth in any of that. And if you stick to your guns, the truth will come out. And God will be your vindicator. And ultimately, God will silence the mouths of those who are accusers. That's exactly what we see in Paul's counter-argument that he's going to make. Verse 7. But the commander, Lysis came by and with great violence, took him out of our hands. That also is not true. And here's the crazy thing. He's going to get invited to testify. There's no chance he's perjuring himself in a Roman court because he knows the penalty of that. Commanding his accusers to come to you, which he did not do, by examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Well, yeah, you get the people who have brought the case, they're, of course they're going to agree with each other. And so this test of truth is, is being put out there. And family, when the truth gets tested, the truth wins. 100% of the time, so stick to the truth. You know, sometimes when we're, you know, as we ordained some pastors today. You know, one of the things I encourage them strongly and to the point of you don't do it any other way than this, is when we counsel, we counsel from God's Word. We don't counsel from secular psychology manuals. We don't counsel from books that tell you how to live your best life now. We, we, do, we don't counsel from stuff that isn't true. We counsel only from the Word of God. So if you come in looking for a psychological reason as why your wife is not doing what you've asked her to do or your husband is not providing the way he should, you're not going to get an answer you're going to like because we're not going to talk about it. We're going to talk about what each of you's responsibilities are according to what the Word of God says because that is truth. What psychologists say may or may not be true. We're not psychologists. We're bibliologists. So we're just going to give you a Bible. And you know, here's the crazy thing. You're never going to be wrong. You just tell people what it says. And then it's up to those who hear it to be doers. Keeps you out of a lot of trouble. So Paul is going to be put into that place where the truth is going to get tested. And in this case, these false charges, we have to be careful about what we hear. We have to be careful about what we repeat. And we have to remind ourselves that in the end, the truth always wins. Now, in our judicial system, there are times when that does not happen. But as far as God's economy is concerned, the truth always wins. 100% of the time. It may take a lot longer than you want it to take. It, it may not be perfectly implemented by humankind, but truth is truth, and you can rest in it. Verse 10, and then Paul, after the governor, had nodded to speak to him. So he's taking all these things, in. you can almost see it. It, it's, it really is like theater. The governor's off to the side. He's sitting. The bemis the seat is... They're in the middle, and they step up, and each one presents his case. After the governor had nodded to him to speak, he answered in as much, And as much as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So now the apostle Paul, check this out. He's like, oh, I got this. I know how to play this game. I know what to do. But he's going to do it, check this out, with character. And he's going to do it with truth. He's going to play by the rules that he's engaged in, but he's going to do it in such a way that every word that comes out of his mouth is actually true. Because what he is doing now is agreeing with the guy that just inflated the ego of the governor. So he's not on the hook for that. (laughs) The guy that just spoke, Turtelus, is on the hook for that one. He says, you know what, I agree with you, He's awesome. This is somebody who's absolutely hearing from the Lord. Paul is going to mount his defense. He's going to make his apologoi, which we get our term apologetics from. It's a, it's a reasoned defense. He's going to speak in defense of himself. And while they're not overflowing, his remarks are, does show a respect for the Roman government. He says, you know what? I'm here in this Roman world. You're the Roman governor. This guy's inflated your ego. You know what? I agree. You're great. Because Paul could say that and be truthful. He was getting a chance to be heard. So the governor is being good to him in that sense. So he says, you want to... Okay, two can play at this game. But I'm going to beat you at it because I'm not going to use lies and flattery. I'm going to tell you the truth. And so he begins to tell the truth... Because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, that they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting a crowd. He just flatly says, this is a stone-cold lie. It didn't go down that way. Notice how he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't try and justify the words that he's saying. He just simply says, here's the truth. I wasn't doing that either in the synagogues or in the city, and nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. One of the ways that you can know that people are in trouble is that they begin to try and mount a defense that's based on trying to refute every single little piece of evidence. Now, that may be necessary in a court of law, but before the Lord, the truth's the truth. And you can just stand on it. I wasn't there. It didn't happen. He's not, you know, mounting this monumental amount of evidence. He's just simply saying, look, why don't you actually ask somebody if I was doing that? And, of course, what he's doing there is he's saying... Look, you, you cannot find me guilty unless I'm giving you the counter-argument. They said I did it, I'm saying I didn't. So you've got to go find somebody that corroborates the evidence. He's actually leaving it in the hands of the Lord that way, instead of backing himself into a corner. This is easily provable. Verse 14, but this, so he, he's rebutted point one. He said, look, I didn't do it. 2. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which is another way of saying, according to Christian understanding, Christian belief, according to the charges you've leveled against me about believers, about Christians, which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. He's actually telling him the truth because we believe that every word that God has ever spoken is true, even as Christians, Old Testament and New Testament. That's why Jesus said, I have not come to negate the law, but to fulfill it. I've come that every yacht, every tittle, every punctuation mark that you find in the Old Testament will be fulfilled. The law and the prophets, all of it. And in this is how it happens. Love the Lord your God. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Paul's doing the same thing. I worship the God of my father. I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As Christians, who do we worship? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the fathers of the Jewish people same guy. Got no problem with that. Believing all the things which are written in the law of the prophets. Can you imagine? They're over there squirming now. They're like, I can't believe he said that. We thought we had him on point two. He's going to surely say, well, I don't believe that Old Testament stuff. You see, because Paul had been anointed and appointed by God, he knew that the Old Testament verified that Messiah would come. And Messiah came. So he wasn't out on a limb. He was resting in the truth. He's saying, I know what you're going to find. If you start digging through the book of Isaiah, you're going to find Messiah. You start digging through Zechariah, you're going to find Messiah. You read the book of Genesis, you're going to see the Messiah. The guy that we believe in, he's in the Old Testament. Same God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he just rests in the truth of God's word. Family, rest in the truth of God's word. Don't try and make up some fanciful argument about how there's an older dispensation. In there, Well, there's, you know, that's, that's for then and this is for now. While some of that has truth to it, we as believers believe 100% of the old testament and 100 percent of the new testament that's not an incompatibility issue that's a very compatible issue because the old testament simply foretells what will happen in the new the covenants are different but god says the covenants are different he made a covenant with abraham isaac and jacob and that's why it you have to leave the jewish people intact as having a plan for right now according to god If you homogenize everything and make the church Israel and Israel the church, if you buy into replacement theology, then here's what will happen. You have to make an excuse for what God did in the Old Testament. I don't have to make an excuse. God still has a plan for the Jewish people, and it includes their salvation. They will one day see Messiah. The New Testament says that. The Old Testament promised that. Simply hasn't happened yet. But they don't disagree. They agree completely. One day, and that day's coming. And so Paul says, look, I believe in the whole enchilada. All of it. Law and the prophets. And I believe in the way that we're traveling that journey right now. Known as followers of Messiah. Messiah. And so he kind of gives a genealogy, if you will, of Christianity. He says, look, here's the way we we think these things. The Old Testament scriptures, the Old Testament law, it all pointed to Messiah. I happen to believe I've already met him. But I don't disagree with what was said. When Isaiah was speaking about that one who would come, who would be the sin bearer, I met him on the road to Damascus. Not a different guy, same guy. The truth always comes out. And for us as the church, for for those of us who know the Lord already, we are indebted forever to the Jewish people. Because God was absolutely accurate when He said, I will make you, Abraham, the father of nations. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Abrahamic covenant we have been the recipients of. Because the King of Kings and Lord of Lords had Jewish blood flowing through his veins. Our Savior is a carpenter from Nazareth. The next thing that we see is good words and good works go together. Verse 15, I have hope in God which they themselves did also accept, just as there will be a resurrection of the dead. Now he's saying, look, I'm going to get these guys thinking about something that's really going to get them going at each other. When when you can do a little bit of a deflection like this and get them thinking about something about which they do not agree themselves, but on which you are solid because God's word says it, people have to deal with that. Resurrection of the dead? Really? Because he again knew the Sadducees didn't believe in it, the Pharisees did. And so he's going to bring something up because in the crowd, probably Sadducees and Pharisees, both. And so they're going to be like, well, I believe in, you know, so you can see the Pharisees going, well, we agree with him. The Sadducees are like, are you crazy? You're believing, what, that? And so now they're doing this with each other. Apostle Paul's just sitting over there. Both of the just and the unjust. So now he's getting at Felix. He's saying, Um, Felix, you need to listen up here. The just and the unjust. And this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. So he's saying, look, I'm not here as your enemy. I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I believe in the law and the prophets. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And what you guys are arguing about, that's between you guys. I don't hate anybody here. I'm trying not to be an offense to any of you. He states his hope in the resurrection. So They're all going, man, I can't believe he said that. When you speak truth to people, they have to deal with the truth. You know, people can disagree with me, and I actually really don't mind it. To be honest, I, I actually don't mind when people disagree. But disagree agreeably, and at the end, deal with the truth. So when I point you to a Bible verse, and I say, look, that's just what it says. One of the common things I get, I get, well, you know, this whole Jesus thing. I mean, it's just too narrow. I mean, what about, and then they fill in the blanks with all the things that are supposed to be the, the things that don't match that standard. I'm going, look, you don't disagree with me. You disagree with the Bible. You have a problem with what God said. And see, that leaves them in the hands of God. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He said, I'm going to put them in the hands of God. So they have to deal with God. I I don't want to be God for them. I'm going to tell them what God's word says, and I'm going to let them marinate in it. And so now they're really worked up. He can't believe he said that. Because Paul knew exactly what was going to happen. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit was going on in the world. The truth is there. The Holy Spirit's convicting and convincing, saying this is right and this is wrong. And so he basically rebuts the argument by setting them on a subject matter about which they themselves did not agree. So now nobody knows who's on whose side. The only thing that Paul knows is he's on God's side. Verse 18, in the midst of which... Some Jews from Asia found me purified. He said, now after many years I brought alms and offerings. But after he does that, verse 18, found me in, in purified in, in the temple, neither with a mob nor any tumult. In other words, I didn't go in there. I went and did a ritual bath. Because I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I didn't want to offend God, so I was doing what God asked me to do. They ought to have been here before you object if they had anything against me. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm entitled to a trial by a jury of my peers. You're making an accusation about some people who you could bring here and let them make the accusation instead of you. One of the principles in our, in our system of law is you're entitled to face your accuser. The reason being, if the accuser doesn't accuse you, you are innocent. If the accuser does accuse you, then you then have the opportunity to rebut the accusation. And so Paul's saying, look, bring the people who were there here. Don't hear it from a second or a third-hand source without the persons who were actually there because they can tell you whether I did something wrong or not. But these guys can't. He's putting the heavy back on them. And again, he's relying on the truth to vindicate him. And verse 20, or else, let those who are here themselves say, if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Look, there's not a single person here who can say anything negative about what I did when I was in Jerusalem. So why are we having this argument? Why are we standing here in this theater going back and forth about stuff about which I was there and these guys weren't? He said, you need to bring some some evidence here, because right now there isn't any. Masterful use of language to make his case. Unless it is for this one statement, which I cried out standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. So he goes back to the resurrection argument. He said, because the problem there was they didn't agree. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were arguing. He says, the only thing that they could say about me was that I actually said I agreed with the Pharisees. Well, look, I'm a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee. So of course I'd say that. So they don't even agree. How can you put me to death? You see how the truth works? How can can you have an accusation against me when half the people in this room agree with me? Now, if they were in the same situation, they would have said the same thing. Paul gets a chance to present the resurrection again. And in doing so, you know what he's doing? He's preaching Jesus. Yep, I believe Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Because that's the part that got him in trouble. And so... Drusilla now comes into the picture, the the wife uh, of Felix. When Felix heard these things, having a more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I, I will make a decision on your case. And so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. You can kind of see the way this is going. This is the hand of God. Look, I just heard a man defend himself. If what he said was true, he's completely innocent. I don't have a reason to keep this guy. Paul doesn't do it through wrangling. He just simply does it through truth. And, and what he did, he did in a peaceful way. And when we do that, when, when you allow God to defend you, when you allow God's word to defend you, when you allow the truth to defend you, and, and the truth does what the truth always does, you can count on the Lord getting the glory for it. And so Paul's maintaining his witness here in a very hostile environment. Verse 24 it goes on to say, And after some days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Now here's the crazy thing. As this unfolds, you're going to see Paul's going to start talking about righteousness and goodness, and he's doing this with a the, with the man who was married to someone else's wife whom he stole. And he sent Paul and Heard him concerning the faith of Christ, so you can kind of see it he 's going he 's okay we 'll go away just i 'll think on this for a little bit, then he brings him back and now verse twenty five says as he reasoned about righteousness and self control and the judgment to come, so he starts being accused of capital crimes, and somehow God turns it into a, and, and now about this righteousness and self-control and judgment to come. Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. I'm going to have a convenient time. I will call for you. And in the meanwhile, he hoped also that some money would be given to to him by Paul. (laughs) He's like, I'm not winning this argument, but at least I can get a nice fat bribe out of you that he might release him, and therefore he sent him, uh, sent for him more often and conversed with him. You see what God's doing right here? Even though Paul's in prison, what's happening is Felix isn't winning, God's winning. So you kind of have to ask yourself, who's actually in prison here? Yeah, Paul's behind bars, Paul's locked up in that sense, but the one who's in prison is actually Felix and Drusilla that's that's the the obstacle of faith to most people they're they're hearing the truth and they they're they're being exposed to the gospel and they don't want to believe what it says but they keep coming back anyway and i praise god for the people that keep coming back to this church they keep hoping that i'll change the message that there'll be some other way other than christ that they can get right with god that somehow I'm going to, well, you know, now we can be saved by, you know, if I just give more. Or I can be saved if I, if I go in the mission field, I can be saved. And Paul saying, no, you actually have to have righteousness. And after two years, Portius Felix, Festus, succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to, do, to the, do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. And so two years goes by of this. Paul's in prison. He comes back. He talks to Felix. He goes back to his prison cell. He comes back with the same truth. It's like, no, you actually need to repent. You need to be saved. And I just see the hand of God in all of this. You see, we as the church can either look for convenience or we can look for Christ. We can either say, I want what's best for me, or we can say we want what's best for the Lord. And I've listened to countless stories of people in horrible situations to where God has used them beyond anything we can possibly imagine, nor do we have time for to discuss right now. I've seen people in prison for murder, that have been used to radically preach Christ. I've seen people that have lost everything that somehow reaches those people who have everything. I've seen people with very little intellect working for them on their side reach people who have monumental intellect on the other side because they simply trust God and allow God to use them wherever they are. And so I pray that we're not looking for convenience while we're here on this earth. Because sometimes it's just life. It's not convenient. It's difficult. It's hard. You may be falsely accused. You may be in prison. You may be kept in prison wrongly. But while you're in prison wrongly, use it to preach Christ. Let God use you every moment of every day in every situation amen and let's pray father we thank you for the opportunities that we have we pray that we'd be more like paul and and a whole lot less like these false accusers lord pray that there'd be never a time in our lives uh, in the way that you have worked in us that we would be uh, used to destroy character or falsely accuse anyone we pray that we'd be people of the truth that you would bless us Lord in all the endeavors that we have while we're on this earth to your kingdom end To your kingdom goals Lord to preach Christ and him crucified for the remission of sin that we'd encourage people to ponder the resurrection that we would encourage people to live in righteousness that we would encourage people to get our lives squared away with God before we worry about what's going on in the world. And so, Lord, we bless you for this example, this incredible uh, picture of a man who just stood fast in the midst of great adversity and allowed you to use him, even even in places that uh, we would like to avoid. And so may we be like Paul in that regard. We bless you. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.